0: Welcome everyone, Dave DeBoe with another episode of the Property Profits Real Estate Podcast. Today, zooming in from beautiful Long Beach, California, Scott Chopin. Scott, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good, Dave. Great to be here. Thank you for the invite.
0: My pleasure. So Scott is a an experienced real estate entrepreneur who's doing something kind of different, which I'm very curious to find out more about. And that is that he and his company have created something kind of new that they call the Urban Townhouse urban townhouse. So Scott, let's just start with that. What the heck is an urban townhouse? What does this even mean?
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate the question, right? Nothing like, you know, good, good definitions when you start having a conversation. So urban townhouse is a style of workforce housing. And then you go, well, what's workforce housing? So for us, workforce housing is building a new construction rental housing product for middle-income families, And we also have middle-income roommates, right? Like during the pandemic, roommate situations are actually a high-growth area for us. But the intention was to serve a part of the marketplace that wasn't being served, right? So if you think about your classic real estate marketplace related to rental housing, on one end of the spectrum, you have what I call true affordable housing. That's government subsidized, maybe social housing, public housing, people might call it. On the other end of the spectrum, you have true market rate, maybe luxury, you know, income's really no object. And then you have this this big middle section where it's people that are working class, blue collar, families, roommates, and that they all have the need to try to rent or buy in this case, but rent was what we do, housing that makes sense for their income categories, right? And we all read the stories of, you know, people need to make fifty four dollars an hour on average, salary to afford the average unit in, you know, whatever city that they live in. And so what's special about these families or these roommate groups is they practice a you know what we call economic sharing. So in other words, you know, anybody who's ever lived in a roommate situation would know what this is like intuitively, like people do this naturally, where they'll come together with other people to share housing or utilities or whatever other costs. Families do this, roommates do this. And so UTH Urban Townhouse is a an answer to at least part of that marketplace. And then, you know, functionally, what makes it different? Like, why does it serve that marketplace? So we build a five bedroom, four bath, three story townhouse rental unit. So the way we describe it, it's designed and built to rent, but it lives like a house, right? So the townhouse allows the family to live above and below, right? You don't have another family above you and below you like you would in in classic stack flat apartments. We have two car garage. We have in-unit laundry rooms, and then we have these five-bedroom, four-bathroom units, and so it basically allows families that live multi-generationally or in big family groups or roommates to come together in this single space, and then you know start to you know practice this economic sharing lifestyle.
0: All right, very cool. So I'm hearing catchphrases here, but let's boil it right down. What, who are your typical tenants? I'm hearing roommates. I'm hearing multi-generational. Yeah, break it down for a dummy like me. What does that actually look like? So originally,
1: the entirety of the program was intended to serve multi generational families. So the definition of that is is two or more related generations of a family living together. So you think, you know, mom and dad, kids, maybe adult children, and then older in laws, grandparents, or older in laws, and they and they're all living together in a single household. Right. It's so kind of very.
0: Typical example of that, from my experience, would be a lot of Latino households mm-hmm. kind of have that. A lot of East Indian households kind of have that. Yeah, have multiple generations living within one house. Yeah, in
1: fact, classically around the world, Dave, that's the normal living environment. So in Asia, in India, you know, in in the Latin American countries, you know, these family groups would never think about like grandma or grandpa living separate. Like you know, I mean. There's functional advantages, there's money advantages, but social right care, right? The idea of, you know, growing old with your families, you know, it's really, you know, the separation, the nuclear family, at least the way we call it in the US, I mean, that's the an anomaly. Right. And even if you go back historically in places like the United States, they used to live multi-generationally.
0: Right? Well, I think it's starting to happen again because affordability. That's right. So- that's right.
1: In fact, we're we're at the highest level of multi-generational living that we have been in like 160 years. I saw a stat that basically we've transitioned. It was dropping, dropping, dropping. Now we hit the bottom and now we're ticking back up on the graph for families that live that way.
0: Well, it just makes sense because of affordability, especially in the country. Because you're on the West Coast, you're in California. That's one of the most expensive markets in the States, from my understanding. Mm -hmm. Uh, Canadian Housing prices have gone absolutely insane as well. So I can see this kind of thing, you know, being big in Toronto, in mm-hmm. Vancouver, in Montreal, in, in some of our major urban areas that are getting priced out as well.
1: That's right. In fact, this product is a function of big cities. That's so right, five like
0: five bedrooms, four baths, correct? That's right. in a townhouse. And you say it's three levels and it's, it's a dual garage. Very, very Yeah. Cool.
1: Yeah, so ground floor would be garage, and then actually we put a bedroom bathroom on the ground floor, right, for grandparents or in-laws who are older and have mobility issues. Mm -hmm. Second floor is kitchen, dining, living, bedroom, bathroom, and then third floor, three bedrooms, two baths. So the interesting thing is that the five bedrooms get everybody's attention, but if you think about anybody who's ever lived, you know, with, you know, multiple people in their family, the bathrooms is actually the real secret Four bathrooms, bathrooms, right? So if you're, everybody's trying to get ready for school and work, right? Bathrooms become the constraint, right? Any, any family. I mean,
0: water tank, I'm thinking is,
1: it <laughs> better have a pretty big one of them. Well, we do, uh, so we do tankless, so ostensibly never runs out. Yeah. And then more recently, we're starting to do private submetering on all the waters for each unit. So no master meter, you know, the older buildings, you'd have one water meter, everybody'd use it, you know, endlessly. And so we've moved to this private submetering methodology, which, you know, billing and, you know, so the families, the water they use, they, they pay for it, which helps, you know, functionally on the economics. So how,
0: how many of these units have you guys built to date so far, roughly?
1: Yeah, so we're right now on our eighth project and, and those sort of group in two categories. So the beginning was what we called the demonstration phase. That was four projects and then we're now in our production phase which is another four projects and what we did in the demonstration phase i mean real estate developers you know any any that you know are are generally optimists and you know risk takers like that's sort of a you know self selected people to come into the business that are that way and i am that way too and so when we first started this program i had you know over about a year and a half period You know, I have background in in some affordable housing that was relative to this, you know, middle income offer, but we still needed to test the model, right? So what I did is I created this demonstration phase. We did small projects. We bought the land very cost effectively with the idea as an experiment that if the experiment failed in the first two or three or four projects that we would move on and, you know, nobody would be like, you know, lose arm or, you know, economically we could sustain it. So we've moved through those four projects. In fact, the first three we sold And then the fourth one's complete and stable. How
0: how many units per project?
1: So the early ones were really small. They they were a two, a three, a four, and a seven unit project. And and the joke I make to people is I've never done a two unit project in my life, right? As a developer, we we always did big and, and still do big projects. But again, this experiment, like nobody had done five bedrooms at scale. And, you know, there's people in the marketplace that do two, you know, or sorry, five bedrooms you know, people are doing some here and there, very specialized, you know, local offers, but our intention was to grow the plan and scale it, Mm -hmm. right? Because we know the demand for this, these families and particularly now roommates in the pandemic is massive, right? The undersupply is huge. The demand is high. That's the perfect market to want to enter into from a niche or a contrarian basis. So we finished all those, sold the first three, the fourth one, the seven unit, we're we're like stabilized and we're keeping. And then now we have several more projects. So we have 13 unit, 15 unit, 24. And then our biggest project to date is an 85 unit project that's in development. And we'll actually phase that. We'll do a 54 unit, phase one and 31 and, you know, phase it to be nimble, right? We're in a, very disrupted time in the economy. So we want to always make sure that we give ourselves options when you're a developer and you take on a a single phase, hundred unit project, you're making the whole bet, right? Like you can never change that. So one of the ways to mitigate risk is you break it in half or you break it into thirds you go, okay, I'm going to build the first phase. If that goes good, then we can start the second phase, just a way of, of mitigating risk. And one of several methodologies that we use to, to mitigate risk, because at the end of the day, as a real estate developer, you know risk mitigation and you know conservative underwriting are the name of the game. I mean, we need to produce returns for ourselves and investors, and, and we've done yeah, that sure. you know, admirably, I would say. But you know, we need to you know survive and then thrive, right? So Scott, I, want to,
0: I, want to, I want to understand yeah. the model a little bit more. So mm-hmm. you've got a number of these up and running already. You sold off a few. You're holding on to some. You've got new projects and the know that that's great but again just to get my head around your your target market so the the tenants that you have in these projects right now where are they coming from so what kind of living situations were they in before and how many of them are are you know roughly family units versus roommate type situations yeah and then I, one kind of last idea is how does revenue and cash flow with this kind of product compare with a more traditional house, for example?
1: Yes, yeah, so the so the families are always super local. like we rarely get a family that you know is imported from out of market. Occasionally we have that, but it, interestingly enough, we we always get everybody super local. and the reason for that is that they have what I call stickiness, and what stickiness is they have strong local social networks. And this is actually a huge advantage once you rent to them why they stick around, even in, in tough times. Think about it, Kids are in school, churches down the street, extended families close by that generally are natively from the, the local area. And uh, interestingly enough, what we've tracked is that the commute to work for the jobs that they have, which is predominantly service-oriented, are between 10 and 20 minutes. So they're sort of like pairing their work life with their home life and you know, these are not people that commute for one or two hours a day each way. They would work at Starbucks or they'd work at, you know, repairing cars locally, or maybe they drive a bus, right? These would be like typical profiles. So they, they these really are, for are kind of
0: lower middle class type folks. That,
1: yeah, I call it blue collar, but you know, it's 80 to 120, uh, 180 to 120% of median income would be the, the income levels, right? But what one of the special things about these families, and this is true with roommates too, is we have multiple earners in the household. yeah, that's a real key for recessions and affordability because in recessions, you have two, three, four people working well if one person loses their job, the family sustains right They've got other incomes to to, and they classically are sharing incomes and expenses this economic sharing happens naturally right we don't Right. Like we don't make it happen. They're already living that way. They just, we just happen to find them or they find us and they move into our unit. Right. So a lot of times super local, they might come out of two apartments. Like we had a family that was like a mom and dad or a mom and her kids and a dad and her kids, and they actually were getting married and combining their families. So we pulled them out of two units. You know, we pull them out of an overcrowded housing situation. So their family of six living in a two bedroom apartment. Right. Yeah. And that's like, obviously, that's not preferable. So that would be the families. Now, the roommates are interesting. In the pandemic, this is something when I mean, we always knew we would have roommates, right? Like that was just, you know, and and but we've had a huge increase in roommates. And what's happening is as companies convert to working virtually permanently, mm-hmm. they're releasing their employees from their location that they work traditionally. I worked in this city or that city. And they're like, go live wherever you want. You're, you're released from you know, your geographic chains. And so what we're finding is roommate groups that are coming together from some other affinity as what I call it. In other words, they were friends before or they were college roommates or they had something in common that you know, had them, that brought them together. And then what they're doing is they're selecting a location where they all choose to live as what I call location agnostic, right? They don't care where they live like for their job. Mm-hmm. But what they do is they pick. Oh, we want to be in Orange County. We like, want to be in California. <laughs> yeah, right. Like that's right. And you know, so so what's happening is they're attracted to our unit size, our bedroom count. And then the interesting thing is, a lot of times we're getting three people that rent a five bedroom. And what they do is they occupy three bedrooms, you know, to to live and sleep, and then the other two bedrooms become work from home space.
0: Interesting.
1: So that that was not expected. You know, the the pandemic came and obviously it changed, you know, very rad- radically and quickly people's living style. The other thing we're seeing is because we're a townhouse, you know, you go out your front door and there's no hallway or entry for your elevator, you're going out in the sunshine and the clear air. And then on the other side you'd have your garage, your two car garage, which, you know, goes on a common driveway. So we're the building format doesn't have shared common space, at least right. in dear inside interior common space. So that's been unique and then having new units by the way that nobody's ever lived in during the you know coronavirus era is is like a real key. I mean we always have done that new unit new construction is our we've always done that that's all we do. Yeah no, it's become a competitive advantage to say no one's ever lived in this unit. Yeah that's no. yeah, perfectly clean.
0: Now how <laughs> do the rents compare to like a a house in that area? Like where where your rent level give me give me an yeah. idea of- what you're renting one of these units out for.
1: So I'll give you a couple of statistics. So when we first started the program, I, it was always my speculation that we competed with rental homes, just like you described, like, you know, single family house for rent in the neighborhood. And so what we would do is we would always tag our rents off of what the local house rental market looked like. So, in you know, Fullerton, one of our projects, we'd find the houses that were for rent that were comparable, say four and five bedrooms, and then we try to be two or three or $400 a unit, sorry, per month, per unit, less than the comparable house, right? We knew we're not a, we didn't have a big backyard and a big front yard and a white picket fence, right? And I always told my leasing teams, I said, if a family had their choice, they'd always rent a house on a lot with a backyard and a white picket fence. That's like, you know, that's the American dream, even if it was a rental model, right? But what's interestingly is the tenants that were, are coming to lease with us they don't even think of themselves, Dave, as house renters, like they're apartment renters in their mind. Mm -hmm. And what's happening is they're finding our five bedroom apartment unit. That's how we advertise it. And they come and check it out and they go, first is they go, oh, this is really nice. Is this for sale? And we go, oh no, it's for rent. Oh, so if I wanted to move in here, I could rent this. We go, yes. You know, At first we're scratching our head going like, but we realized that it was so different that these families didn't even believe that it was not that it was real. They could see it, but that like, this is so unusual, huge key, right? Really noteworthy for, for tenants that's to see this. Okay. So to answer your question, we're renting on average a five bedroom four bath unit for $3,500 a month. That's our rent really throughout, you know, LA and Orange County, pretty, pretty standard across the board. That's about $2 a foot. And so the other metric we use is if we compare ourselves to regular new rental housing. So your classic multifamily, new construction in California, we're easily three to $4 a foot for rent. So you might get that $3,500 rent, get got you a two bedroom or maybe a three bedroom if that even existed. And so from a whole dollar rent, this is the real key from a whole dollar rent characteristic, we're hugely competitive and then what the metric becomes for these families and these roommates is they they divide the rent by the bedroom count instead of per foot, which no tenant thinks of rent in a per square foot. They go, what's my monthly, like a car payment? Like I got to, I got to pay that. That's how they organize their lives. But what they do is they go, oh, I have five bedrooms, 3,500. They can do the math. So I have this bedroom, you pay this much, that kind of thing. So the metric is the bedroom count and the rent per bedroom, whether it be for families or roommates, it ends up being the same.
0: Fascinating. Time flies. We're having fun, Scott. So if people want to find out more about you and your urban townhouses, what should they do?
1: So what I would offer for folks, they can go to our website, www.urbanpacific.com forward slash ebook. And we'll make the offer to your listeners. If they sign up for our email list, they could get this ebook. It's how to thrive and survive a recession which is a lessons that we took from us going through as real estate owners, investors and developers through the 2008 recession and I think it's timely to you know for people who may be new to the entrepreneurial space to to look at that if folks want to visit our investor education section on that same website or a lot of investor education materials and specifically for investors who are thinking about new construction investment versus value add investment we do a lot of education about how to underwrite new construction if you're not familiar with it i mean most sophisticated investors probably have experience in that but some people are making that transition and we spend a lot of time you know teaching educating so videos articles you know blog posts tons of data in there that can be helpful for people that are looking to make that transition
0: good stuff awesome so there you go Thank you very much, Scott. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for uh, enlightening me as to what an urban townhouse is. Sounds It's a great idea. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate the invite. All right, everybody. Take care. and We'll see you on the next episode. Bye-bye. Well, hey there. Thanks for tuning into the Property Profits Podcast. If you like this episode, that's great. Please go ahead and subscribe on iTunes. Give us a good review. That'd be awesome. I appreciate that. And if you're looking to attract investors and raise capital for your deals, I'm going to invite you to get a complimentary copy of my newest book right back there. There it is. The Money Partner Formula. You can get a PDF version at InvestorAttractionBook.com. Again, InvestorAttractionBook.com. Take care.